This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, we got a great show lined up for you and a very special guest back to join us on the table. It's Dr. Laura Walker from General Medicine and University of Toronto. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again, Kieran. Thanks for joining us. What do you got teed up for us this week? So the study that I looked at this week uh, is a study that looked at mortality of hospitalized uh, internal medicine patients and basically compared patients who were bed spaced to those who were on regular general internal medicine units. And it was published in the BMJ in November 2017. So Laura, what is the bottom line for this bed spaced article? So the bottom line of this article is that patients who were admitted to internal medicine who were bed spaced to other inpatient units had a significantly higher mortality than those who remained on general internal medicine wards. What is bed spacing, Laura? Explain that to us. So bed spacing is a concept that a lot of us know in internal medicine. It basically means that when you are admitted to general internal medicine, when the general internal medicine or GIM ward has become fully occupied, new patients from the emergency department are sort of bed spaced to other non-GIM units throughout the hospital in order to free up emergency department beds. So these wards could include things such as cardiology, nephrology, or even uh, surgical uh, wards. And what's the concerns that some people have when patients are moved off of their home, so to speak, in the general medicine ward to other areas of the hospital? That's a really great question. Uh, A lot of us have probably experienced this uh, day-to-day when we uh, rotate through uh, general internal medicine or CTU units. So we know that there are a lot of logistical hurdles when someone is bed spaced. So if a patient is bed spaced to another unit, they may be on a floor where nursing staff is not as familiar with internal medicine issues. It can also be harder to keep a close eye on the patient if they're more unstable as they're physically in a different location of the hospital. And also disposition issues can be more of a challenge um, as it may be more difficult coordinating things with the allied health staff, um, such as physiotherapy and occupational therapy, as well as charge nurses and CCAC coordinators who are not familiar with the general internal medicine team. Absolutely. And I know from my personal experience, sometimes we don't even get to talk to them very easily to help uh, communicate the patient's plan when they're from different, uh, different floors and different services. Tell me, Laura... What is the evidence that we have to date around what all of these concerns that people have play out as far as affecting patient outcomes? So despite how we subjectively feel about bed spacing and our individual encounters with patients who have been bed spaced, there have actually been very few studies that have directly looked at the effect of bed spacing on patient outcomes. And this is why I think that this study is so important because if we're able to show that there are worse outcomes objectively with bed spacing, then there will be more of a drive to promote QI initiatives that can potentially promote patients remaining on GIM wards uh, in the hospital. Sounds like a reasonable rationale. So tell me, Laura, what was the design of this study and where did it take place? So this was a retrospective cohort study that was conducted between January 2015 and January 2016 at a large Canadian tertiary care hospital. And data were obtained from patient electronic medical records during this time period. Data were collected on patient demographics, admission diagnosis, comorbidities, death in hospital, and details of discharge from hospital. Okay, and who were the patients that they specifically included in this particular retrospective study? 
So patients were included if they were admitted to one of the four GIM clinical teaching units teams during the study period, and they were excluded from the study if they were admitted to the medical short stay unit. So this was when their anticipated length of stay was less than 72 hours. Um, or if they were admitted to the step-down ICU unit, uh, or if they were transferred to another service during their hospital admission, or if they were discharged, left against medical advice, or passed away before they were transferred from the emergency department to to a ward bed. Okay, so we're looking at your typical general medicine patient who's admitted, staying, and anticipated to stay for more than three days. What was the exposure in this particular study? So the exposure was bed spacing, and they compared those patients to those who were not bed spaced. When patients were admitted at this hospital under internal medicine, they were transferred from the emergency department to the general internal medicine ward. And when the GIM wards were full, the patient flow coordinator would secure a bed on an off-service floor, depending on bed capacities on the other units. In the paper, they mentioned that during this process, the admission diagnoses, illness severity, and disposition planning did not influence their decision of where the patients would be bed-spaced. So if patients were on a GIM unit, they were located on geographically consolidated hospital wings where the GIM physicians are also primarily located. But if they were located on a bed-spaced unit, then they would be on wards such as surgical wards or subspecialty wards such as cardiology and neurology. And at this hospital, there were four different clinical teaching unit or CTU teams, each of which were comprised of an attending physician, senior and junior residents, as well as medical students. And this team or each team was responsible for the care of both the assigned patients on the GIM wards, as well as those beds based on off-service wards. And at this particular hospital, the nurses and allied health staff were organized by ward location rather than by team. So when patients were bed spaced on different units, even though they were still being cared for by the same CTU team, um, they were being cared for by different allied health and nursing teams. And so they were being cared for basically by the allied health and nursing teams that were on that particular floor. Right. I mean, with a few subtle differences, that's that's pretty similar to the centers that I've practiced in, and you and I are in the same centers, Laura, so I'm, I'm sure you probably agree. How long did they follow these patients up for, and what were they looking for? So patients were followed until death in hospital, or until hospital discharge, or for up to one year following admission, whichever came first. And what was the primary outcome that they were measuring as far as the concerns they had around bed spacing? The primary outcome was all-cause in-hospital mortality. All right. A very important, obviously, outcome. All right, Laura, so that is an important outcome for sure. You've made the bed nicely. Now take us through the results. So the main findings were as follows. During the one-year study period, almost 5,000 patients were admitted to general internal medicine, of which approximately 3,200 were included in the analysis. Of these 3,200 patients, about 35% of them were bed-spaced to an off-service ward, and the remaining 65% were admitted to a general internal medicine ward. That is a busy hospital, 5,000 admissions in a year. That definitely supersedes the major hospitals in downtown Toronto, as far as I know. We, we average around 4,000, I think, per year. 
So Laura, tell me of the 3,200 patients that were included, what happened with their primary outcome? So of the approximately 3,200 patients included in the study, 5% of them died in hospital, which included 88 patients who were bed-spaced, which represented 8% of the bed-spaced patients, and 88 patients who were assigned to the GIM ward, which represented 4% of GIM ward patients. And this resulted in a hazard ratio of 3.42 at admission, uh, which decreased sequentially to 3.26 for the first week of admission, 2.68 during week two of admission, 1.43 during week three of admission, and finally 1.16 during week four of admission. And this was found to be statistically significant. So what you're saying is more patients were admitted to the GIM ward than were bed-spaced, but the proportion of those who died was higher in those who were bed-spaced compared to non-bed-spaced patients. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And basically, bed-spaced patients had the highest risk, which equated to almost or approximately a three-fold higher risk of death compared to their GIM ward counterparts at the very beginning of their hospital stay. And this risk degraded over time. And once they reached approximately week three of their admission, the risk of death was, was approximately the same as their counterparts who were admitted to the GIM ward. So I think, Laura, there's a, there's a fairly obvious question that I need to ask. Are the patients who are admitted to the GIM ward the same as the patients who are bed-spaced? In other words, did the study investigators try to find some way to match their risk of being put on the GIM ward compared to the bed-spaced ward? Yes, that's a really excellent question. So these results were also found to be true when the researchers tried to adjust for these factors. So what they did was they used propensity score matching and pair matching to adjust for differences in baseline patient characteristics. And these differences included things such as demographics, the number of patient comorbidities, which CTU team they had been assigned to, as well as their admission diagnoses. And were there any important secondary outcomes you thought were of interest? They did look at a secondary outcome, and this was hospital readmission, but there was no statistically significant difference that they found. Okay, Laura, so I think that's a fairly interesting uh, finding in this study. I don't know if people would would appreciate that there's such a big difference between these types of patients. Anything else as far as, you know, concerns you had or, or talking about strengths and limitations of the particular study? So the main strengths of this study include the fact that it utilized a large sample size, and they also did do a pretty good job of adjusting for many potential confounding variables using the propensity score matching and the pair matching that I talked about previously. The main weakness of the study was that it was a single center study, so it is difficult to say whether we can generalize these findings to other hospitals who have different GIM models, have different allied health models, and patient flow models. In addition, because it was a single center study, there is always a risk of overinflation of the effect because it is more difficult to completely avoid bias in these types of studies. And I think, Laura, I mean, my main concern beyond the things you've already raised, they say, you know, in their in their description that the process of deciding where patients go in the hospital are supposed to be made independent of admission diagnosis, illness, severity, and disposition planning. But I can't I can't believe, and I know from personal experience in talking to our bed flow managers in our centers, that that's actually true, that that they're totally blinded and independent in making that decision. So for example, a lot of patients who have a 
potentially surgically inclined or or a, an illness that surgical patients will often develop, let's say a post-operative pneumonia, then very often those patients will end up on those wards where the surgical nurses are more comfortable rather than dealing with some, you know, rare internal medicine disorder. So I find it hard to, to believe that truly and um, honestly, those types of decisions were made in an entirely independent fashion of what the what was going on with the patient at the time. And that has been my my experience too. Unfortunately, it's it's really hard to control for this type of bias in this situation because as per their hospital protocol, these types of decisions are not supposed to be influenced by the factors that you talked about, such as admission, diagnosis, comorbidities, etc. So it would be extremely hard to control for this type of bias in this single center study. Absolutely. So who does this study apply to? Who are we thinking about now? So this study applies to any patient who is admitted to general internal medicine from the emergency department. And I'm going to add in this academic institution because we really don't know if the results are generalizable to other hospitals with different care and patient flow models. All right, take it home for us, Laura. What are the main learning points you want our listeners to take away from this very interesting and I think important study? So the bottom line of this article is that patients who are admitted to internal medicine who are bed spaced to other inpatient units had a significantly higher mortality than those who remained on the general internal medicine wards. And this risk was highest during the first week of admission. I think this study really highlights the need for managing patient flow in a way that prioritizes patients admitted from the emergency department in order to ensure that they're admitted to a GIM ward when possible. And I think that this could potentially open up a number of QI initiatives to study ways that we can make this happen. There are actually already certain hospitals that ensure patients are admitted from the ED, go straight to a GIM ward, and rather bed space patients who have already been admitted for several days or weeks. And now we have the data to support this because we now know that the critical time to be on a GIM ward is actually within the first week of admission. However, all of this being said, this study does have to be interpreted with caution because it is a single center study at an academic institution. So it's really unclear whether this is generalizable to other centers in the province and the country. Uh, So future multi-center studies, I think, um, need to be done that include both academic and community hospitals with different patient flow and GIM models. And this would be helpful to determine if these findings hold true on a larger scale. Yeah, and, and hold true in either direction if the risk is larger or smaller in certain centers. Well, thanks for that, Laura. That was a very interesting study. I appreciate you bringing that to the table. I'm going to move on now to the study that I chose for this week, which is uh, we're sort of talking about policy level directed studies this week. This one was looking at what factors are associated with increased U.S. healthcare spending over the last uh, decade or so. Um, And this was published by Joseph Dielman in JAMA in November of 2017. Okay, Kieran, that sounds like a really interesting study. So what is the bottom line for this article? Well, Laura, in this retrospective study examining trends in U.S. healthcare spending between 1996 and 2013, spending increased by $933.5 billion. Service price and intensity alone accounted for more than half of the spending increase, Although the association of the five factors with spending varied by the type of care and the health condition you looked at. Really understanding these factors and their variability across health conditions and types of care may inform policy efforts to contain healthcare spending 
which as we all know is on the rise. Oh, very interesting. So why did you choose this article? Well, healthcare spending is certainly on the rise, and in the United States, it's increased substantially from 1995 to 2015. In 2015, it comprised almost 18% of the entire economy, so almost one-fifth of every dollar goes to healthcare. Countries around the world, including Canada for sure, where we live, are facing increasing pressures to contain healthcare costs. So really getting a good understanding of the relationship between what factors are driving spending increases over time could help to inform policy efforts to contain future spending growth. So, Kieran, tell me about the design of the study and where did it take place? Well, as you can imagine, this was a retrospective study of all U.S. healthcare expenditures that were related to inpatient, ambulatory, retail pharmaceutical, nursing facility, emergency department, and, for good measure, dental care, between 1996 and 2013. What data did they use to estimate healthcare costs? Yeah, this is a very challenging thing to do in healthcare, especially, is sort of account for all the dollars that are spent. But the data came from two main sources. So there's a very large study that's called the Global Burden of Disease 2015 study. This study estimated the prevalence, incidence, uh, number of deaths, and other very important epidemiologic metrics that were stratified by age and sex groups for 315 different health conditions. And they were collected in the years 1990, 1995, 2000, 2005, 2010, and 2015. And they get that data from 1,604 different data sources that include hospital data, claims data, and surveys. So a massive, massive study that contains a ton of data in it. The second source that they, they derived their data from was a study called the, uh, it's actually a project called the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluations U.S. Disease Expenditure 2013 project. Uh, and this, this project estimates U.S. healthcare spending and service volume for each year between 1996 and 2013. Um, and it synthesizes information on healthcare spending from 183 different data sources. So all in all, we're looking at just over 1,700 data sources to figure out the U.S. healthcare costs across the entire country. Oh, wow. So what was the primary question of this study? So they looked at five fundamental factors in the healthcare system that could influence spending. And they ultimately asked the question, of these five factors, which ones are accounting for the largest changes in healthcare spending in the United States? Those five fundamental factors were as follows. The first was changes in population size. If your population grows over time, maybe your spending goes up just because you have more people to look after. Factor number two was the aging of the population. We're all dealing with something that people would call the gray tsunami. Um, and if your population is older, thereby in general, developing more health conditions, maybe they cost more to look after. The third uh, factor was changes in disease prevalence or incidence. So are diseases becoming more common or less common with advances in medical care and prevention? The fourth factor was service utilization, which translates to the number of visits in an ambulatory setting, or if you're in an institution, the number of bed days that you're spending there. And the last one was service price and intensity. So that was not a count of the number of visits or bed days, but the actual cost or spending that one had on a per visit or bed day basis. And all spending estimates from the project data set were adjusted for inflation over time, and they were expressed in 2015 dollars. 
So looking at all of these different variables, what was their actual primary outcome or end? Were there any secondary outcomes as well? Yeah, so the primary outcome was just to look at change in healthcare spending throughout the study period and the factors that were associated with it. That was the secondary outcome, so to speak, which was which factors and what factor specific drivers of change in spending account for these. And so these are things like disease categories, different domains within the healthcare system, such as pharmaceutical spending, as an example. All right. So drum roll. What were the main findings? So um, I, I kept it kind of simple in the methods because it's obviously very complex how you have to account and adjust for all these things. But to, to kind of keep it on a superficial level, after you adjust for price inflation, healthcare spending increased by $933.5 billion between the years of 1996 and 2013. And that was a healthcare budget of $1.2 trillion to $2.1 trillion in the United States. This is the magnitude of money we're talking about on healthcare. Now, of the five factors I told you about, changes in service price and intensity accounted for 50% or about $580 billion of the spending increase. Population growth as the second factor accounted for 23% of the overall increase, or just about $270 billion. And aging as the third factor accounted for about 11% of the increase, or an estimated $135 billion. And those two combined, the population growth and aging, represented more than 33% of the spending increase. So did they find any differences with changes in disease prevalence or service utilization that could affect the cost? Uh, they did, but to a much lesser degree. So changes in disease prevalence or incidence were associated with spending reductions, in fact. So we found about a 2.5% decrease and a close to $30 billion decline in spending. So yay for medicine. But service utilization did not affect a change in spending at all. So to summarize, basically between the year of 1996 and 2013, after adjusting for inflation, healthcare spending still increased by almost $1 trillion. And half of this was because of changes in service price. That's the main driver. And the changes in service price, were these adjusted for inflation as well or no? Absolutely. Everything is expressed in 2015 equivalent dollars. So and is adjusted for inflation across the board as it changes over time year to year. That is a massive amount of increase in spending over less than a 20-year time frame. That is, that is shocking. It is shocking, Laura, and that's the main concern that people have in all different sectors of the United States and other countries is that the growth, the rate of growth in the United States is unsustainable. And for example, the annualized growth rate of healthcare spending in the U.S. between the same time period was 4%, but that's in excess of the rate of growth of the total U.S. economy, which was only 2.5% during that same time period. So, in other words, the healthcare system is growing in its usage of funds at a faster rate than the economy in the United States is growing to provide those funds. That does not sound like a sustainable healthcare system. So is there anything about this study that caught your eye? Well, the, the some of the more interesting findings beyond the shocking headlines are in some of the details. And 
you heard in the bottom line that the association between those five main factors uh, and spending varied by the type of care and health condition. And I think some of this speaks to the advances we've made in modern medicine. So, for example, cardiovascular care saw a decline in its incidence and prevalence overall because of the huge efforts and pharmaceutical advances we've made in primary and secondary prevention. However, the cost savings from the decreased incidence and prevalence of cardiovascular disease were offset by increases in service utilization and intensity. So cardiovascular care is becoming more expensive uh, and people are requiring more services for the existing uh, cardiovascular care that they have. The second example is in the diabetes world, which is potentially even more scary. This condition had the greatest absolute increase in spending with an annualized rate of about 6.1%. And most of this increase was related to increases in retail pharmaceutical spending. We've seen a lot of big drugs come out on the market in the last uh, several years for diabetes, and they cost a lot. Diabetes is a major prevalent disease in, in the U.S. and across the world, and obesity is driving it as a major risk factor. So we have a lot of work to do in cost containment, and some of that comes from continuing to, to prevent these diseases from happening. So Karen, what are the main learning points from this study? Well, Laura, the main learning points are that spending on healthcare is outpacing the growth of the U.S. economy. Overall utilization and prevalence of some diseases is down, which I think highlights the advances we've made in modern medicine. But the price of care is increasing, and this is potentially due to older, sicker patients, along with rising costs that may be due to things like technological advances in medicine, so that costs of care are more expensive than they've ever been. Some of these effects are modifiable. For example, drugs in medicine that we use or some types of technologies can be evaluated as to their cost effectiveness, but others are not. For example, the aging population is not a modifiable uh, factor. So creative solutions overall to cost containment are needed, and I think we're going to need to make some difficult choices about how we uh, deliver healthcare over the next decade or so. And I guess the one silver lining in the study is that something that is modifiable, which is the cost of healthcare interventions, represents over 50, almost 50% of the increase in cost over the study period. So at least 50% of it is potentially modifiable in the future. Yep. And I think that you may start to see, and in fact, in Canada or in Ontario, at least, we are starting to see some of the policy interventions that are aimed at trying to control those costs at the price of care, and some of that comes to physicians and the cost of uh, care that physicians provide. So thank you so much for sharing that article, Kieran. I guess we're on to your favorite part of the segment. Yes, it's the good stuff segment. I loved how you just stole that introduction. Brilliant work. Well, Laura, we're talking about what we're reading about uh, and what is catching your attention this week. So I came across an article on NPR this week that's called oceans may host the next wave of renewable energy and this article basically talks about a new potential way to create renewable energy called wave energy whereby researchers are actually trying to harness the power of ocean waves into renewable energy the u.s department of energy is actually planning on spending up to 40 million dollars to fund the construction of a wave energy test facility off the oregon coast Right now, researchers are in this field are conducting experiments uh, in 
in a lab, but their research is limited by the fact that they aren't able to produce real-world conditions. So the construction of this new facility is really exciting because they'll eventually be able to test their hypothesis and further develop prototypes for this type of energy utilization. The researchers say that they still have a really long way to go before wave energy becomes a foreseeable part of our future, but some estimate that if this is successful, they predict that 10% of the world's energy may be able to be provided by the ocean. So I just thought that was really interesting. Absolutely. I always wonder what impact it has if you harness the energy that is naturally occurring in nature for our own use. And I always wondered about windmill farms and whether those stealing the wind, so to speak, had any uh, impact on, uh, on its ecosystem around it or whether we took enough of the energy that was contained in there to actually make an impact at all. Sounds like a good PhD thesis, Karen. <laughs> uh, maybe for a, a, an environmental scientist. Uh, well, Laura, <clears throat> my good stuff this week actually stayed within the theme of policy and payment in the healthcare system. Uh, this came from the NPR website, and it talks about, with rising healthcare costs, the fact that many policymakers are asking the question, how should doctors be paid? And it's a major question that's occurring in several different healthcare systems around the world, such that people are asking whether physicians should be paid based on the quality of the care that they provide, or if we should be continuing to focus more on having them provide volume and on a fee-for-service type of uh, uh, model where we're uh, paying them for, this, for each service that they provide, regardless of the quality in which they deliver. Under the Obama administration, several changes were implemented to focus on quality-based payment models, but the news that, that is being reported these days is that Trump is rolling back many of these uh, uh, policy changes that Obama introduced. And in fact, many doctors are supporting Trump in his approach, stating that they don't like to be forced into new programs. Um, but Obama contended that without mandatory enrollment, not enough people would participate in these new types of payment models to evaluate them effectively. And this all comes at a time when Alex Azar, a former pharmaceutical executive, was just named Secretary of Health and Human Services, the major department of health in the United States. So we'll see what Big Pharma has in store for U.S. physicians now that he's going to be in charge. Oh, that sounds like a very interesting and uh, contentious article. Thanks for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. Have a read. It's kind of interesting. It's a transcript from an interview. Anyways, Laura, uh, thank you for joining us as always. We really appreciate you coming on the show and you bring... Uh, had great perspective and interesting articles to talk about, which we always appreciate. So we hope you can come back soon on to the Rounds Table. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time as always. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Roundtable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundtable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.